0: are listening to a sermon from the Pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. We turn again to the book of Genesis. Genesis, we are in chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 1 took us to the beginning of all things, creation itself, creation of heaven and earth and all things. And chapter 2, we're zooming in on mankind, Adam, and next time we'll see Eve, uh, her creation. We're looking at mankind. Why are we here? What are we called to do? What is our purpose? How do we relate to God? And we are slowly working our way through and we're coming this evening to verses 15 to 17. And we'll see here most clearly uh, described for us, the covenant of works is being um, established and ratified for mankind. Well, let us turn our attention to the reading of God's word from Genesis chapter two, verses 15 to 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. So chapter 2 Began Really, the first three verses began finishing chapter one, the, the completion of the creation week with the seventh day, that day of rest, of God resting from his labors. And then chapter two, verse four, we, we began looking at, as scriptures calling our attention, to mankind. Verses four through seven, we saw that mankind was created to rule over the earth, to tend to it. And mankind was created body and soul. And we are redeemed both body and soul as well. And then verses eight through 14, we saw that God placed Adam in the garden, the garden that was in Eden. This place of richness and fullness and wonder. And we saw, so after that, after we see where Adam was placed, we came come to these three verses in verses 15 through 17. As it re- focuses primarily on Adam's relationship to God. What was that relationship like? And here we see is a it is a covenantal relationship relationship. God relates to his people covenantally. This is what theologians call the covenant of works, and we'll be unpacking this this evening. Now, one objection to even saying this from the front is that I don't see that in the text. It doesn't say covenant. It doesn't say covenant of works, and yes, that is true. It's not there, Um, but I think we can say pretty clearly and definitively that this is a covenant for several reasons, One is from Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, where God is speaking to Israel, and he says this, but like Adam, they, speaking of Israel, transgressed the covenant. So like Adam, Israel has transgressed the covenant. And what covenant would Adam have transgressed if it was not here, this covenant being ratified here in Genesis 2? And uh, uh, Hosea 6-7 goes on to say, there they dealt faithlessly with me. And so transgressing the covenant deals with being faithless, disobedient to God. And here we're setting up those parameters of the covenant that will lead ultimately to Adam's faithlessness, Adam transgressing the covenant. But there was a covenant that Adam later broke. But then this evening, we're going to really spend our time looking at the fact that all of the elements of a biblical covenant are here in Genesis 1 through 3. All of those elements are here. And ultimately, we're going to wind up at the spot where we're going to see, so preview here of the end, that we, you and I here today in 2024, are saved through Christ's keeping of the covenant of works for us. So this is going to show us the covenant of works and how Christ has now kept it for us and we are saved through Christ. So let's consider the covenant of works here in Genesis 1 through 3, but particularly as it comes to a head in 2 verses 15 through 17. But first, maybe a brief comment. What is a covenant? What is a covenant? And there's many definitions, but I think most simply and basically, a covenant is a solemn bond between persons. It's a solemn bond between two persons, two persons creating a relationship in a solemn, serious way. And we see here, there's a covenant with all of the essential elements. We'll walk through them. First is parties. There must be parties to a covenant. It's a solemn bond between persons. They're they're parties. And it's clear here that Adam and God are the parties. Now, as a creature, Adam owed a duty to God just by being a creature. He had to glorify God and he was obligated to him. But even more than that, Adam was not just a creature. He was an image-bearing creature. He was made in the image of God. There is something special about humankind in his relationship to God. God gives specific commands to Adam, indicating this special covenantal relationship that God has with Adam. By being an image bearer, God is, as we've argued before, as we've shown from the text in chapters one and two, by creating Adam and Eve in a uh, as image bearers, He is creating them in a covenantal relationship with Himself. And these commands show us that they're special blessings and they're special sanctions, which we'll look at talk, talk of more in a moment. And this special relationship is there between Adam and God compared to all the other creatures. There was no other creature made in God's image. No other creature was given these same commands. And it's also important to note that God didn't have to do this. God was not obligated to enter into a relationship with humankind. This covenantal relationship is an expression of God's unsurpassable goodness and kindness. Kindness. The fact that he would come to us and relate to us in this special way is, is an indication of God's glory and his kindness. Our confession of faith, I don't often quote it in a sermon, but it, I think it's, it's illuminating particularly well in this instance. Chapter one, or ch- uh, chapter 7, uh, section 1, says this. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator. Stop there. The, the, the distance between us and God is massive. God is creator. We are creatures. The distance is so, so great. But even though we were created as reasonable creatures, we, we owed God obedience. We are reasonable. We we Being made as his creatures obligates us to obey as reasonable creatures. We owe him that. Yet, they humankind could never have any fruition of God as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. And so covenant is God's voluntary condes- condescension. God coming down to us to, so that we would have fruition of him as our blessedness and reward. Covenant is about God bestowing himself upon us that we would know God himself as our blessedness and reward, that we would know communion with him and the joy of the the triune, uh, inter-triune fellowship. And so we're getting kind of to our second point here. Yes, there's parties, God and man, but the promise is the second essential feature of a covenant. A promise, and that promise is the confession summarized, the fruition of God as our blessedness and reward. That is the great promise held out for humankind, that we can know God. He is our blessedness. He is our reward. He is the greatest being and we can know him. And God promises to give in this covenant that blessedness of himself to his people. The sovereign, the almighty God will bless a mere creature with his eternal joy and love and satisfaction and contentment. How does Genesis 1 through 3 describe that promise? He uses different language. It doesn't say it quite how the confession says, but it's getting at the exact same idea. We've looked intently already at two ways that it's done this. And first is the Sabbath. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, the Sabbath as that goal of, of resting, enjoying God for eternity. God's resting is a picture of what rest we are called to. We are called to enjoy God's rest with him. And then we've also seen the tree of life in uh, chapter two, verse nine, where it was there in the midst of the garden, as it were at the top of the mountain, indicating this is where God most clearly bestows upon his people life eternal. And it's manifest here at this tree that God blesses with life. And so both of these ideas, the Sabbath and the tree of life are holding forth to Adam what that blessed future would entail. Eternal rest, in God's rest, and eternal life, in God's life. that's fruition of him as our blessedness and our reward. And we also see here in this sanction, again, we'll come to that in a few moments, that sanction, you will surely die, but the opposite is also implied. If you obey, you will have life. So the promise here is life. You'll have life abundant if you obey You will not die. You will enjoy the Sabbath rest. You will eat forever of the tree of life. And some call the covenant of works the covenant of life to highlight this very fact because the goal of the covenant of works was life eternal, was confirmation in an eternal state that you could never fall from. Eternal rest and God's rest and eternal life in God's life. So that's the promise that was held out in this covenant. But all covenants have a condition. Adam would not automatically receive this covenantal blessing. It was conditioned upon something. So this is the third element, condition. Now implicitly scattered throughout chapters one through three, there's all kinds of conditions and and obligations that are put on Adam. Uh, Chapter one, verse 28, uh, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There's commands there. Adam was to fulfill a calling. He was called to do these things. His vocation, we could say, was to do these things, was to be fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue, have dominion. That was what Adam was called to do. This is part of his covenantal obligation, was to fulfill the vocation God has given mankind on the earth. It's was confirmed in chapter two, verse five, where Adam was called to work the ground. And then here we have verse 15, which says for us, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So here we're specifically and explicitly describing what that vocation that Adam had looked like. It was called to, he was called to work and to keep. Now we read this and think, okay, Adam was to be a good farmer, And yes, that was part of his task. But these are not primarily farming tasks. This does not primarily mean go work the land. These words, work and keep, are two verbs most, uh, they're tied most closely to the work of priests in the Old Testament. These are two words that are used repeatedly of the Levitical priesthood. They are called to work and to keep, or maybe an alternate translation is to serve and to guard. To work is the same word as to serve. They were to serve God and they were to guard his temple. And these two words, these same two Hebrew words are used to describe the priests. So really we have here the priestly vocation of man, particularly in the garden. Adam was called to serve God. His number one job was to serve God and to worship him as a creator, as the covenant Lord. And he was also called to guard the sanctuary, the garden of Eden, to not allow any intruders in to keep it pure, to keep it peaceful, to keep it the place where God dwells with his people. To work and to keep or to serve and to guard. This is part of the condition of the covenant of works. Adam and Eve were called to fulfill this vocation. And so these constellation of commands are laying the foundation for Adam to obey God and to obey him wholly as he was called to serve God with this priestly function. But his vocation is, was to obey God and God's law in its entirety. Now, we don't have the Ten Commandments listed here, but we do have the New Testament telling us specifically that the law of God is written on the hearts of all human beings. And that certainly includes prior to the fall. And Adam knew that law far better than we do after the fall. So he knew the law of God and his part of his vocation was obedience to the entirety of God's law. So these commands show us Adam was called to obey completely and perfectly all of God's law. But there's a very specific condition placed upon this covenant of works here in the garden. And that comes in verse 17, where God specifically tells Adam the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's one specific command that's above the rest of God's law that particularly identifies the covenant of works, and that's this command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think like the tree of life, there's a lot of confusion about this tree. Some say this is just some random arbitrary command. Something Some think uh, maybe more in a, a pagan uh, mythological sense that that. Uh, the trees have some kind of magical powers to confer godlike knowledge upon humans. But there's no indication that this tree was uh, magical. Um, it did not convey special knowledge just if one ate of it. So, what does the name mean? Why the name, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I think it's because at this tree, Adam will have to make the determination between good and evil. He will have to know good and evil here. And in fact, he will have to decide between the two. He will have to judge between them. It is at this tree where he will most strenuously be tested in living in conformity to the conditions of the covenant of works. This is the tree of testing. This is the tree of judgment. This is the tree where Adam will have to make the judgment of knowing between right and wrong and good and evil. Will Adam pass the test is the question. This this tree is set up as that test, the test, the judgment test, or some would call the probation test for Adam. He will be called to decide whether he will rightly judge between good and evil. I think the tree also highlights for us the essence of true religion. Or as Gerhardus Voss says, at the tree it will be determined, quote, whether man would make his choice for the sake of God and of God alone. At this tree, he will have to decide good and evil for the sake of God and God alone. The question is, what did Adam delight in? Did he delight in God or did he delight in himself? And the essence of true religion is delighting in God, the God of heaven and earth, this benevolent God who has come down by way of covenant to us. This is the true religion of knowing God, delighting in God for God's sake, God's sake alone. So it's at this tree. Adam will have to make the decision. Will he delight in God? Will he choose what is good for God's sake and God's sake alone? Or will he reject God? Well, we know the answer, what Adam ultimately does, and that leads to the sanction. The sanction in the day that you eat of this tree You shall surely die. There's true spiritual death, and particularly broken communion with God. That is death. But even more, being under the wrath and curse due to sin. Not only were they cut off from God's presence, and ultimately they were cast out of the garden, but they now were under the wrath and curse of their sin. They had to now pay the penalty for their sin. So spiritually, there was death, but there's also true physical death that was to enter the world, the violation of this covenant. Physical death. Humans would be subject to death and pain as a result of breaking the covenants. So these four elements help us see that, yes, there is a covenant here between God and man, We see the parties are here. The promises is made. The conditions are stipulated and the sanction is named. I think it's important though, as I've said before, just to stop and to remember that the very existence of a covenant demonstrates God's kindness. Again, he was not obligated to do any of this. He was not obligated to come to humankind and to bestow himself. To grant them the fruition of, of, of uh, their fruition as blessedness and reward of, of God Himself. He did this out of His kindness, out of His love for His creation. But Adam fell. Adam broke the covenant of works. And so he was now subject to the sanction, death itself. And you and I, we all find ourselves as covenant breakers. Because we have, we are Adam's children. We have been, he is our father, and we, as he broke the covenant, we have broken the covenant. But also, we ourselves have broken the covenant with our own actions, our own sin, our own violations of God's law. And so, what hope do we have? What hope did Adam have? So, we land here at this place where we see the covenant of works clearly holding out life, but clearly broken. And so the sanction of death is on the table. And so what hope do we have? R.C. Sproul famously would say, we're saved by works. And of course, good reformed Presbyterians would say, of course not, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. Yes, which is true, but we're saved by Christ's works. We all have to be saved by works. There's no way to be saved apart from works, but this is the glory of the covenant of grace that is now inaugurated after Adam's fall, which we'll we'll come to in chapter three. The glory of that is God promises salvation through the works of another. The covenant of works still binds us. The law of God is still written upon our hearts. It still condemns lawbreakers. Those who don't know Christ, your conscience condemns you, you know breaking God's law is a violation of some eternal moral order. And there's condemnation for that. The covenant of works is still in play. No one can escape the clutches of it, but Christ fulfills it for his people. On behalf of his people, he has fulfilled all righteousness. He has perfectly Fulfilled the vocation given to mankind. He has perfectly kept God's law. He's given, he has received eternal life and gives that to all of his people. We call this, we call part of this the active obedience of Christ. Oftentimes we look only at the cross and, and say, yes, the, the, the salvation comes through the cross, and praise God, it absolutely does. God or Christ dying for us in our place, our sins being forgiven. Absolutely. We call that the passive obedience of Christ and that he's suffering, passive passion suffering for us. But there's also the active obedience of Christ. And that means every single moment of Christ's life, he was actively keeping the covenant of works. Through his entire life, he was obeying God's law to the T. He was perfectly loving God every moment of his life. He was loving his neighbor perfectly every single day. There was never a moment which he violated the covenant of works or the law of God. This was Christ actively keeping the law. He kept every part of it. Though no, there was no tree of the knowledge of good and evil, before him, but he had his own version of it, a heightened version, if you will, because Satan himself, when Christ was at his humanly speaking weakest moment, 40 days in the desert, no food, no drink, Satan comes to him, says, I'll relieve your distress. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. This is just like Satan appearing to Adam and Eve. Did God really say? Satan appeared to Jesus in the desert saying, did God really say? Twisting scripture, distorting it, calling him to trust in himself and not in his heavenly father. There was, as it were, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil for Jesus. It was Satan's tempting him in the desert. But Jesus Christ, unlike the first Adam, the last Adam successfully completed the test. He said, no, Satan, I refuse to listen to your words. I will choose God for God's sake. I will delight in him. I say no to all the world has to offer. He obeyed God. He fulfilled all righteousness. And this is the amazing thing about it. It's not just, yay, look at what Jesus did off here in the distance. Although we do do that and praise him for it. But what he has done there 2,000 years ago is what he has now given to us, his people. The imputation of his righteousness of every perfect work that he did is now given to his people. Every moment of keeping the covenant of works is now yours. And so when the father looks at his people, when he looks at those covered in the righteousness of Christ, he sees those who have said every kind word of Jesus, who've said every true word of Jesus, who has performed every act of compassion that Jesus has, who's withstood the wiles of Satan himself. That's what the father sees when he looks at you. He sees the perfection of his son because his righteousness has been given to you and your sin has been given to him. And that's why he received the sanctions of the covenant of works. Though himself never needing death, never needing to undergo the sanctions of the covenant of works, Christ did. Death on a cross, the wrath and curse due to sin was upon his shoulders because he took our place as a substitute. And yet for his perfect keeping of the law, he received the reward and gave it to us, a reward of eternal life. Knowing God, the blessed one, the glorious one, his presence forever and ever, he gives it to us, eternal life. So the covenant of works shows us what we were intended for. It shows us what we were made to be. We were made to obey God. We were made in this covenantal relationship with him, calling us to be holy, calling us to be perfect, calling us to do these things, and we would receive eternal life. But now the covenant of works has been broken, oh, so quickly, the covenant of works makes us cry out for a mediator, cry out for a savior, one who can keep the covenant for us. And we have that in Christ. Our only hope is Christ. Apart from him, you will fail the covenant of works. You've already failed it. And the sanctions are coming for you. You are spiritually dead and physical death will come. And the wrath and curse of sin will come. So you need one who has completed it for you, who has fulfilled it for you. The threat of the emphatic, surely you shall die It's been carried out upon Jesus Christ. For all who look to him will be saved. And so the covenant of works helps us grow in our our understanding of our need for our Savior and helps us understand his work even more. Appreciate who he is even more and helps us love him even more. He has fulfilled the covenant of works because you couldn't. If the first covenant of works was not required of God, how much less required of him was it for him to come and to die in our stead? That is an astounding thing. And God would take human flesh to himself and receive the wrath and curse that is due to us for our sin. He has fulfilled the covenant of works and he is now our mediator. He has gone beyond the stipulations of the covenant of works and he now mediates for us and brings us to the Father. And so the same law that condemns us, the law we come to that makes us realize we are guilty sinners in light of the cross, in light of now our new status as being children of God, redeemed, righteous. The law is no longer a burden, as we sang earlier from from Psalm 119. The law is a guide. The law now is a joy for us to follow because this goes back to that original vocation. This is what we were made for. We were made to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that's what Christ has allowed us to do yet again, imperfectly the sight of glory. But we have an eternity awaiting us where we can honor him, glorify him, enjoy him. And yes, when Christ returns, we will never be able to sin again. We will completely and perfectly realize him, God. He will become at that point, the fruition. We will will have fruition of him as our blessedness and reward completely and finally and ultimately because of Christ. And we will forever sit in his presence, glorifying and praising him. That's what we were meant to do from the beginning. The covenant was broken, but Christ has fulfilled it for us. So brothers and sisters, let us again look to him today. Let us rejoice in the salvation and let us then look out to the world with now a vocation, a place we can go. We are now called to the world in love, to care for our neighbors, to love them as ourselves. So as Christ has redeemed us, let us now with new eyes of love and faith look to the world to love our neighbors as ourselves. Let us look to the Lord in prayer. We thank you, O God that Christ has fulfilled the covenant for us that we could not do. And he has bestowed that covenant of grace upon us whereby grace alone, he has fulfilled all of the obligations of the covenant of works on our behalf. We rejoice in this. We know that this was not because we have done anything to deserve it. This is not because we are good enough because of your mercy and your grace. And so we thank you and pray that you would continue to be at work in your people, to enable us to go into this world, being ambassadors for Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.